to Isaiah chapter 65 this morning, and junior church can be dismissed at this time to go down the hallway. We've been told kind fictions in our lives, and if you were not raised by Tim Graham, you heard a kind fiction called Santa Claus. Um, the, uh, if you think about that, 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 that lovely story that uh, children are raised with, and, and just think about the math of it, two billion homes in one night. I mean, there's eight billion people in the world, two billion homes, you know. Two two-ounce cookies in each home, 500 million pounds of cookies in one night, 62,500,000 gallons of milk if you have eight-ounce servings. I mean, you know, hopefully your children don't do that much math and don't worry about it that much to think about how one person could consume and digest all of that. Um, you're not supposed to do that with kind fictions, are you? What about Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah? I mean, because they're, they're, they're kind of tricky and complex because God reveals some things, and you, you'll see them even with the prophets. He'll say, oh, what you just saw, you, you shut that up and you don't disclose that right now. That was just for you at this moment. God meets out certain details in Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. And so you'll see in Isaiah 53 that he is going to come, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to make his grave with the, with the wicked and with the rich man. And yet, you also see he's coming in victory to deliver his people. So which is it? And, and, and just think about processing that as an Old Testament saint. Should you? Should you process all of the... Should you have been like... Um, uh, uh, you had Anna and uh, Simeon, who were prophet, uh, prophetess and a prophet, waiting in the, temper for the, in the temple for those who are waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when Jesus shows up, for his circumcision, I mean, they are, they, are, they are with those who are waiting for the consolation of Israel. Do you suppose they were looking at those prophecies and saying, now hold it, how does Isaiah 53 square with 2 Samuel 7 that the seed of David is going to reign forever? Or you take the 70 weeks of Daniel. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Actually, the word weeks is the word sevens. So what are these sevens? Are they weeks, literal weeks, like seven-day weeks? Or are they years? Or is it merely symbolic? Because, you know, the number seven in, in, in Hebrew thought, <clears throat> the number seven is the number of completion. And so when you have 77, you've got a lot of completion. So you could just take that as a metaphorical phrase that in the completion of time, when the time is full, then Messiah is going to be, in this case, cut off. And the sanctuary cut off after the 69th week of Daniel. Or do you take it literal? Do you say, well, wait a minute. It says from the time to build the, church, the, the, the temple, that's 444 B.C. on the Gregorian calendar, March 3rd, book of Nehemiah. And then you use the Jewish reconciliation of 483 years yeah, 69 weeks of seven, uh, 69 sets of seven years. You use the, the Jewish calculation of that, and, and that takes you to 33 AD, one week before, or the, at the beginning of Passover week. So should you take that literal? Did, uh, of course, we do now looking back on it, but did, would they have had any encouragement to take that literally? And then, of course, you think, well, wait a minute, there's a 70th week, and, and after the 69th week, Messiah is cut off. Okay, that happened rather quickly. Uh, but then it said the sanctuary would be destroyed. That happened in 70 AD. 
Okay, so when, do, when does that final seven happen? And John on the island of Patmos, he, he writes the book of Revelation in 95 AD and says it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen yet. So do we take that literal? If we can do the math and take the first six, do we take that literal? Or do we just take it as metaphor? God's got it under control. and At the end, there's going to be something. But God's got this. I tend to take things quite, quite literal and, and yet at the same time, difficult, unclear, purposely unclear. The, Messiah, the, 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 the prophecies concerning the Messiah, thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be called among the clans of Judah. From, uh, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler over Israel. And uh, yet there were prophets, according to Matthew 2.23, going around saying he's going to be called a Nazarene. Well, how can he be called a Nazarene and be from Bethlehem? It happened, literally. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Okay, so he identifies, the metaphor there, he identifies with the people of Israel in captivity, released from captivity. He identifies with them, but he literally fled to Israel. As a baby, his parents fled. He was taken along. And he literally came back out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. So as we, as we look at those things, the, the reason I bring all of this up and the reason why I am pausing today for these few verses in Isaiah, I could have covered it last week. It's really part of a larger argument. Uh, they're just something that doesn't quite fit in my chronology of how I'm understanding the end times. And so I just wanted to stop and I wanted to talk about that today and, and talk about the difficulty and, and, and see, if, uh, you know, see if you see the confusion, if you see any benefit, um, or perhaps you can even help me out. Who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll look at this together. Today's sermon is going to spend, you, if you have your outlines, they're very long outlines, okay? Today's sermon is going to spend a lot of time on point number one, like 20 minutes, and point number two, with all those other bullets, they're like average a minute each, okay? So you're not going to be here uh, much more than half an hour. So just don't, don't get scared by the outline today, all right? Um, now, this, this passage we're looking at today, we're going to cover verses 17 to 25. And this is an outline that I've reworded, provided by uh, Moit, you're here. But, but basically, today's passage, talking about the new, uh, the, the, the new Jerusalem and its people, uh, it, it occurs in kind of a, 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 a set of nested loops. If you're a programmer, you understand nested loops, nested logic. And, and so what you will see, for instance, is what we studied last week, God was calling to Israel. And you're going to see at the end of this argument, God talking about him calling Israel to himself. Um, in verses 2 through 7, you're going to see God judging. Toward the end, next week, we're going to see God judging you can see, we saw last week a discussion of God's remnant in verses 8 through 10. Uh, we're going to see that remnant discussed in verses 5 through 14. So basically, this is the structure. And I bring this up because sometimes when you structure an argument, you're not thinking chronology. You're thinking argument. If I go downtown and I say to somebody, there's two things you can count on in life, what are they? Okay. Who said taxes and death? Okay, who said death and taxes? 
See, I, I learned it death and taxes. But anyway, yeah, so I, whenever I've said it, death and taxes, you just say, some of you are very chronological people, very Western in your mindset. Um, and I'm, I'm not so sure that, uh, that, that Isaiah is here as he presents it today. So with that in mind, what, what bothers me about the text, let me just show you here real quick. In verse 17, it says, For behold, I created new heavens and a new earth. Okay? Now that is, to me, just in, in my chronology of understanding how God's going to fold things out, that's the eternal state. When the new heavens and the new earth appear on the scene, that is the eternal state. No more death, no more dying. We live eternally, not on a cloud with a harp. Okay, we live on the earth, recreated with busyness and activity and purpose, but joyful purpose as we image God, uh, working and, and, and tending to the earth and to glorifying him. Okay, but what bothers me in this text, if you drop down to verse number 20, it says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for, here's the reason, the young man shall die a hundred years old. That's as if to say, if a man died at age 100, they go, oh, he was so young. Okay, now, as I'm understanding in the new heaven and new earth, there is no death, and yet this is saying, man, and if anybody did die or when somebody dies, they'd say, oh, he was so young. Okay, now that to me is something that's possible in the millennial kingdom, but not something for the eternal state. And yet, you have new heaven and earth in verse 17, and then you have this in verse number 20. And so it doesn't follow chronology-wise. All right, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Let's read the text, and then we'll pray and ask God's direction. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people a, to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed." They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall, enjoy, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear calamity, children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Behold, they call... Uh, before, I'm sorry, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today, I pray that you would give us understanding of it. And uh, Lord, uh, while we look at a technicality, I pray that we would see the bigger issue here and that of having our hearts set on the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ and our hearts set on that time when you will uh, redeem us, resurrect us, judge us, judge the world. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to hear a well done, good and faithful servant when that happens. And I pray, Father, that by focusing on this time, you would cause us to be sanctified and eternally minded. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So as we uh, look here at the beginning, we see that God calls on the reader to behold his future work. New heavens, new earth, where former things, sinful things, sinful people do not even come to mind. 
Now, if you, if you look at the setup to this, go back to chapter 65, actually chapter 64, verse number 12. That last sentence in chapter 64, God is asked a question, will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Now, do you think those are nice people asking this question? <laughs> Probably not, all right? Verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am. This is God calling to Israel. To a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. So God, we studied this last week. God said, I was calling. And, and now you seek me. And, and so if we go to verse number 13, as he and, continues to answer these wicked people, therefore, verse 13 of chapter 65, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall go hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. And, and so he's talking about this judgment that is happening. And he says in... Um, in, uh, oh, and verse number 15, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. So your name going forward from this time is going to be a curse. It's going to be like being called uh, Jezebel or Cain, raising Cain, or um, Judas Iscariot. I mean, it just, uh, your name is going to be for a curse. And, uh, and in, at the end of verse number 16, it says, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. And here we come into today's text, for behold, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Your wickedness will not be remembered. Uh, the way Jerusalem was a bloody city and people were abused by the elite will not be remembered. This will all be put away. Verse 18, um, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So that is where we are going. That is where we are going with the remnant that are righteous and faithful. And again, I'm tripping up a little bit over the technical terminology, new heaven, new earth, with some descriptives of things like people dying that doesn't sound like the new heaven and the new earth to me. And so, again, structure may not be the concern. It, it just simply may be a statement, here's where things are going, and there's a lot of elements. Let me give you an illustration. We're going out to South Dakota with the youth in uh, June, God willing. We're going to go visit Mount Rushmore. We're going to visit Harney's Peak. We're going to visit the Needles, the Badlands. Walk through the Badlands and talk about how those Badlands washed out of the Black Hills after a volcano. And, and, and uh, we're going to go visit a mammoth dig. So it's going to be a creation science visit. By the way, we have about three families already tagging along with us, getting their own campsites. We're going to feed them and, and have them join us for all the activities. But um, I just mentioned Mount Rushmore, Harney Peak. That was not an itinerary, okay? The, the itinerary did not matter. In fact, that's not the order of the itinerary, okay? Um, and, and so we're just talking about the quality of the event. And so it is the, not always the case when you write about future events that you're wishing to lay out tomorrow's newspaper with a chronology and a timeline for the reader. That is my thought of what could be going on here. If not, let me say this. Whenever you have a text that is unclear and doesn't seem to be saying, hey, I'm giving you a timeline, 
versus another text somewhere else in the Bible that says, hey, I want to be clear, I am giving you a timeline. And you read that one and it's very clear in its timeline, that's where I go to at least begin the discussion of the timing of events. And so with that, if you would like to turn, I'm actually going to put the verses up here in a moment, but if you'd like to turn to Revelation 20, you may. Because that is one that you'll see the grammar, the structure, seems to be making very clear that at this point in Revelation 20, God is saying, I want to give you a timeline, an order of events. And we'll see why that is in a moment. Before we get there, I want you to see a, a chart that just, just shows how our church sees future events. Now, I'm putting it in a chart. That doesn't mean we have it all figured out, okay? The chart could be wrong, all right? Uh, it, it, this is not infallible. Um, this is a framework for thinking through what God has revealed. And what is sad is when somebody has no chart, no grid, no paradigm to even attack with the scriptures as they try to inform themselves, okay, or to, to uh, interpret in the scriptures. So I, I just think it's good to have some ideas uh, as to what has been revealed. Uh, we have Christ's first coming to earth, and that, again, is a surprise to many Old Testament texts. It was promised the Messiah would come, and there's two comings. Uh, you know, because sometimes it talked about him coming to die. Other times it, came to, uh, it talked about him coming for victory and, and defeat of, other, of the wicked. And we discover, oh, that's broken up into two separate comings. A first coming and a second coming. Now here, uh, at his first coming, he died for sin. He rose from the dead and then he ascended into heaven. His disciples are like, hey, we want to be with you. We want to go with you. Where are you going? He said, no, no, I'm going to prepare a room for you. Uh, this is the language we were at a wedding yesterday, and, and just thinking about weddings and how Jewish weddings were. You'd go to your dad's, uh, you'd add a room to your dad's tent, you'd add a room to your dad's house, you'd go prepare a place, and, and then you'd come and you'd fetch your bride, and it was part of the ceremony. And, and so Jesus uh, is saying to them, hey, I'm going to prepare a room for you. I am your groom. I need you to wait. I'm going to prepare. I'm going to come when the Father tells me. And, and so um, uh, what we understand then is when he comes, he is going to rapture the church. We see some language about him coming in the clouds and uh, believers meeting him in the air. We would understand then that there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, believers are judged in heaven at this time. Down on earth at some point, uh, there's a Middle East peace treaty that brings seven years of power to the Antichrist, three and a half years of peace, and then three and a half years of judgment and war. And then, uh, and of course, believers dying, being martyrs. Uh, and then at the end of this, Jesus returns with his saints. Now, those who died here, I would, I would assume there's going to be another resurrection, that they're going to enjoy the kingdom with us, that they're going to reign and rule with Christ as well. Now, it's more complexity of the resurrection, right? How many resurrections do I have so far? I've got two. I've got one at the rapture. I've got one at the end of the seven years that, that I would infer from Scripture. And now we've got this millennial kingdom, this thousand years. Jesus Christ, when he returns, there's the battle of Armageddon. Satan is bound. We'll see that in a moment. And we've got this millennial kingdom. And of course, when you read the Old Testament, you read about God judging the nations. Ezekiel listed every nation that even sneezed at Israel for judgment, except for one, and that was Babel, because he was living in Babel, and probably not a good thing to write openly about Babel. Uh, if you see the word Magog and you flip that around backwards and shift it one letter, they call that a cipher, then you would see the word Babel. So maybe Magog is Babel in the book of Ezekiel. But, he but God talks about all of, these, all of these nations getting judged and, and the minor prophets, nation after nation after nation, getting judged. 
And of course, there's an important metaphor there that God is going to judge sin eternally, but it sure sounds like he's judging nations right here in this globe. Ezekiel writes about a temple with rooms and dimensions that has never existed on planet Earth and lines uh, lining up at the north gate, going out the south gate, uh, lining at the south gate, going in the north gate. And in the eternal state, it says there is no more temple because God is our temple. So where do you put Ezekiel's temple? Is it just metaphor that, of people's hearts with all those dimensions, those crazy dimensions? I put that temple right here in the millennial kingdom. So uh, there's just a lot of things that I think God is literally going to do. They're full of metaphor. They're full of importance beyond the actual event. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, right? What is the metaphor behind that? He's the son of God. Now, that could have just been metaphor. I mean, you know, looking at Old Testament prophecy, you might argue it didn't have to be a literal virgin birth because even that word for virgin is also translated young woman. A young woman will give birth. And, and the idea of virginity could have just been all metaphor that he is the son of God. And yet God did not leave it to mere metaphor. He contrived the most bizarre human conception in world history, conceived by the Holy Spirit, literally. To put forward the metaphor that this is the Son of God. There may be some other theological categories that are being satisfied in that as well. But here's my point. As I interpret things in the Old Testament, I cannot find a single promise concerning the first coming of the Messiah that you can write off to mere metaphor. Every, everything that was said was fulfilled literally. If it was to happen by now, it was fulfilled literally. And so here's my argument. God writes his metaphors in the pages of history because he's God. Human lives and the universe are his ink and paper. <laughs> he, he, he writes out his metaphors in events of history. So anyway, so I, I see this millennial kingdom as pretty important to, to being able to understand all of the promises that I see in the Old Testament. So then you have this great white throne judgment, new, eternal, new earth, eternal state. Okay, so let's go to a text that would seem to me, I'm going to argue, would seem to me to be saying, here I want to present you with an order of event. Of events. Now, it uses the word then, then I saw. Now, that could be saying, then I saw what was going to ne next happen, what was then going to happen. Or it could be, this is just my experience as a prophet. I saw this and I saw that. Like me talking about our trip, you know, uh, I saw Harney's Peak and, and then I saw Mount Rushmore. Maybe I saw them in reverse order, you know, but, but, but uh, you know, here uh, he's saying, then I saw. So we don't know if that's really the order of his vision or the order of events that's going to happen. You see what I'm saying? Let's keep reading. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottom of his pit, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, that could be literal or that could be a complete amount of time, a metaphor, okay? Um, and he threw him into the pit and shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, whether you see a thousand years as a metaphor for a long amount of time or literally 1,000 years, which is what I see, um, it's clear that we now have an order, a sequencing of events that he is going to be bound until this time period is completed, okay, in the future. After that, he must be released for a little while. So you see where I'm seeing cues that this text is trying to give me a chronology, an order of events. Let's continue. 
And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, person number one, individual number one, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast, person number two, and the false prophet, person number three, were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I take that to be the moment at which, after the thousand years, after the battle, they are forever cast into the lake of fire. And we continue reading. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now, again, this could be the order that the revelation was given to him, and we could be not talking chronology, but because the rest of the passage was talking chronology, I'm continuing to read it that way. Um, From his presence, the earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I would take that to be with Satan, with the beast, with the false prophet forever. That's my understanding of the chronology here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And again, when that man dies 100 years old in the kingdom, I hope somebody's crying for him somewhere. Um, But this is the eternal state. They wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so... What I am seeing here as I look at this is I'm seeing a chronology that allows for a thousand-year period. And in that thousand-year periods, I am seeing the literal fulfillment of literal prophecies that are just, just pregnant with metaphorical meaning. And the metaphor is far more important than the events. Jesus could have been born in New Jersey for all you and I care. He needed to be of the seed of David. Bethlehem is the Davidic seed, uh, the Davidic city. And so the metaphor behind him being born in Bethlehem is that he is Davidic. 2 Samuel 7 is fulfilled. But he was literally born in Bethlehem, even though the metaphor is the more important thing. And so as I look at prophecy, huge metaphors behind them all, but literal, literal events. And so when I look at Isaiah, I say all that to say this. I didn't want to get into this last week and try to sandwich this in. When I see something that doesn't quite fit from a passage that isn't seeking to teach me chronology... I take it as, well, it's not chronological. That's what I'm taking from today's passage. But Revelation 20 and 21 would seek to teach me uh, chronology. Now, you could fix all of this by being all millennial. And that is what the majority of our good brothers and sisters are. No millennium. 
Uh, their theology would be that what well, is metaphor, or it's being, it's being fulfilled, the thousand years is completeness of time, and it's been 2,000 years, and, and we're not talking about a number, we're talking about a quality, a completeness of years. And the, the thing you need to understand in all these prophetic uh, messages uh, are that the metaphor is God judges sin, God judges wicked people, God has got it under control. Now, I, I'm not well enough versed to defend their theology. I will say this, they have the upper ground in terms of having popularity among evangelicals uh, in our seminaries. That is the main view. So if you, uh, if you go through advanced studies, you will encounter more and more of this. They're still good people. I've met some of them, and as we shared views, they'd never even heard some of the passages I was talking about, never even considered. And, um, and, and, but, but the sad thing they said is, you're the first premillennial I have ever met who didn't think I was going to hell. And I'm like, that is really sad. I mean, how we discuss the Bible, how we differ with one another, it ought to be done with respect. And I will confess I am not fully defending their viewpoint here today. There's, there's much literature on this, and they have the upper ground in the scholarly society. This is, this is our understanding. This is my understanding. And um, I have to say this. From a pastoral standpoint, is it really good to be sitting here struggling with all these future events? To be asking, is it this or is it that? I would say yes. Anything that gets your mind into the resurrection, into the end times, is a good thing. And I would use 1 Corinthians 15 for that, where it talks about those who don't believe in the resurrection, and Paul says, uh, don't be mistaken, bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, you know, for these people who don't, oh, the resurrection, it's not all that important to be thinking about that, to be believing that. Uh, he says, no, no, that'll affect your sanctification. Because you and I will leave this church tomorrow. We'll be alone with our devices tomorrow. We'll be at work with our frustrations tomorrow. We'll be with our family going through issues that are frustrating us tomorrow. And, and there are times where I, I frankly am tempted to take the shortcut and, and maybe stomp on somebody verbally or write somebody off or gratify the flesh. And the reality that I'm going to be dead sooner than I like and standing in the presence of my Savior being judged, the reality that all of this eschatology could start unfolding tomorrow is very much sanctifying for me. I need to live and make my choices in light of eternity. In light, and, and that's why I think God revealed these things to us. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, he, he, he gives out prophecies so far. He tells the prophets, you hold that back. Let's just keep that between you and me. Another time, he purposely does this, and I think he wants us studying. I think he wanted, I think he wanted Anna and, uh, and Simeon asking questions. Uh, 69 sevens, those would be up here maybe within my lifetime. Maybe the Messiah is going to show up right here at the temple, fulfilling the law, being circumcised, and I want to be here when he does. I, I just think they thought that way, and I think we should too. So let's go through the more... Uh, uh, fast-paced part of the sermon here. Jerusalem will be a joy marked by these characteristics. We're just going to kind of read through most of them, except for maybe the first one, because there's a few alternatives on this first one. No infant deaths, and a man dying at 100 would be considered the death of a young man in verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die 100 years old. Now, this could just be surmising that, that you know, if anybody were to die, 
they were at 100. They would be considered young in this environment. It, it could be, you know, a first-class conditional. I really don't see this as being a first-class conditional. I, I see it as being something that, that might be happening. One observance I would say is this looks like pre-flood life expectancy, pre-flood lifespans. Like Methuselah, who lived 900 and some odd years. Um, it says, for the young man shall die 100 years old, and the sinner 100 years old should be accursed. Well, sinner is always accursed. Why, why, why is a sinner at 100 accursed in particular? Okay, that word sinner, it, it could be literally that, uh, you know, if you're a sinner, it doesn't matter that you're still alive at 100. You are accursed in this world. Could be that. Uh, it could also be the word sinner could be, it, it means to fall short here. And so it could be the one who, is, who falls short, who is cut short, shall be accursed. In other words, if somebody did die at 100, they're accursed. That it was judgment. And, and keep in mind, there's an era in the future where Jesus reigns with an iron fist, right? That's not the eternal state with sanctified people. That's the millennial kingdom with, with a blend of people. Um, so, uh, so that's the second idea here is that if somebody does cut, uh, get cut off at 100, they were accursed. The last one would be just a restatement, poetic restatement of the first phrase. And you see that a lot in prophetic poetry, where the one cut short shall be considered as accursed. In other words, if somebody were to be cut short at age 100, dying as a young man, people would say, oh man, it's like he was cursed. That is so unusual. That just doesn't happen. It's like a curse was on him or something. So there's three, um, three um, uh, possible interpretations there. I really can't help you choose between them. Uh, my, my, my focus is just simply, I would say, in the kingdom, uh, that, that if you have sinful people, keep in mind in Zechariah, there are going to be nations that aren't going to be faithful in giving their offerings. And God says in Zechariah 14, I will withhold water and I will, be, I will plague their crops and they will go hungry. This is in the millennial kingdom, as I understand it. And, and so there could be people uh, committing suicide, uh, unsaved people committing suicide in the kingdom. Um, there could be people having accidents in the kingdom. I don't know. But, uh, that, but, that, but at least as I walk away from this verse, that's my understanding, and I'm not trying to get any chronology or inform my chronology from this passage here today. Uh, let's continue. Our Jerusalem will no longer be invaded, and lives will no longer be disrupted by warfare. Uh, you and I, you know, the, the, the typical American pathway, you know, you go, to, you, you go to trade school or college or you get a job, you save money, you put down payment on a home, you start filling that home with stuff and uh, you just kind of expect when you hit retirement, hopefully the home's paid for and you've got some savings. But in most of the world, throughout most of history, you have to plan for being attacked and having it all destroyed and having nothing. The clothes on your back and you start over. And, and so this verse, uh, verse 21, addresses that. They shall build houses and inhabit them. This is something new for Israel. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruits. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, or shall the days of my people be. So uh, he's just, uh, we're talking about a time where God is going to undo all of the curse of sin that has been falling so heavily on Israel. Women will not miscarry, nor will they give birth to children only to have them die in calamity, but rather they shall be one with their offspring in the presence of the Lord. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain. That's what I'd understand to be a uh, miscarry. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. That's what I understand to be the loss of the life of a child. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. So you, your descendants, 
together in the presence of the Lord. Again, the curse of this sinful world being undone. God will answer their prayers before they even utter them, and when they begin a prayer, God will answer it. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Now, this does not turn God into your slave, your genie in a bottle. Uh, th- this speaks of a time when your heart and God's heart are at one. Uh, the things you're praying for are the things God so much wants to do. He's on it before you even utter the prayer. He's there. He's with you. And then finally, we see an Eden-like precurse, pre-fall manifestation in nature. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Ever seen a den of wolves out grazing in the alfalfa? Probably not. They're hunting mice in the alfalfa, probably, but not grazing, all right? But the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust and dust shall be the serpent's food. Now, is that a curse on the serpent, the species, the, 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 uh, the species called a serpent? Is that a curse on serpents forever? Yes and no. Um, when worms eat dirt, do they feel oppressed? No. I mean, uh, you know, they're not human beings made in the image of God. There's, there's no consciousness, self-consciousness in that way. They just do what they're created to do. And serpents will eat dirt. Um, That'll be just what they're created to do. Now, there is a demotion there for you and me thinking human beings to see. As I understand the serpent in the Garden of Eden, that serpent was a beautiful creature. And that serpent was not, at that time, crawling on the ground. Um, Here, they not only will be crawling on the ground, they will be made to eat dirt. That's a safety factor. They're not praying. They're not, they're not uh, uh, doing venomous bites. Uh, so, you know, that, 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 that is a safety factor. But it's also a metaphor, a demotion that you and I will see for all of eternity, a reminder of sin. God has a world of wonder in store for us. Now, next week we're going to work backwards into the logic. And we're going to consider the last two verses of this book. And they are stunning and scary, if I may say it that way. The last two verses of Isaiah, just what? But we're going to look at that next week. In the middle of this argument, as you saw the structure earlier, we are in the middle of an argument. God has a world of wonder, beauty, and peace in store for those who love him, who serve him, who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and have faith in the Messiah. There will be a new heaven on earth on our way there. There will be an era for mankind like the world hasn't seen since Eden. A kingdom ruled by God, restoring order. Why study these things? Why think of them? Number one, the more your mind lives in the future of the return of Jesus Christ our Lord, the more you focus on the judgment that awaits humanity, the judgment that awaits you, the better informed your choices are when you are alone. You need to love God. You need to love His Spirit. You need to let His Spirit speak to you when you are tempted to sin. You need to be thinking about the judgment and the well done, good and faithful servant. I think it's important for our minds to live in this space called the end times, the resurrection. Another reason you should study these things is anxiety. Uh, People 
are growing increasingly anxious in our world, the state of our world, the state of technology and what technology might do, the state of our union, the United States of America. There is so much to be worried about. But this world and this era will not continue in this direction forever. Jesus Christ is coming. He makes all things new. And that is a good thing. In the meantime, sinful man will continue to sin, storing up wrath against himself in the day of judgment that will further glorify your Lord. But there are literal events in our future and thinking through those and thinking through how things are shaping up as we get there. Not to set a date, not to set a time that, oh, I know when Jesus is going to come, but to just know that God does have this. He is working His plan and you should not be anxious. Any Christian speaker who comes to you and says, oh, you better be worried because this looks like an end-time event. No, you ought to be rejoicing. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Yeah, this is falling apart over here. And that points to the fact that my Savior is coming. So I think for anxiety, you ought to be studying these things. Studying of end times should not create anxiety. It should create joy, peace, and comfort. Our God's got this. I do have to say this today, if you're visiting and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, none of what I've spoken of in terms of this beautiful world is yours. Uh, we are all sinners. None of us are going to stand in the judgment in our own righteousness and say, yeah, I got it right, I did it right, I did pretty good. We're all going to confess that our minds are full of sinful thoughts. We're all going to confess that words have come out of our mouth that are awful words. Mean, hateful, filthy, all kinds of bad words have come out of our mouths. Our hands and feet have done wicked things. And for God to bring all of our lifetime of sin together in one moment of consciousness, it would undo us. With shame, with guilt, with redness of face. Not just one event that would make our face red, but every event that we've ever done that would make our face red all at once, the weight of that on our soul would be crushing. What is the solution? The solution is that God laid all of that sin on Jesus Christ. He lived a righteous life. He died a punitive death for you. And the terms of you receiving this gift is that you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. With a heart of repentance, turning from sin, you need to trust Jesus. If you've never done that, you should pray even now, Dear God, save me in the blood of Jesus. Let me stand in His righteousness and may His punishment be my punishment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, this is a passage that just had a little point of confusion for me. I pray that my confusion doesn't trip up this congregation. I pray, Lord, that you'd bless us as we turn here in a few weeks to studying the book of Revelation. It's uh, rather coincidental, and yet, Father, we trust your spirit has us headed there, um, announced uh, many months ago now. And uh, God, it seems to be very timely to be going there, a book that talks about repenting and preparing for judgment, preparing our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be strengthened in our confidence in your word as we review Old Testament prophecies and New Testament prophecies. We see the unity of your word. I pray, God, that you would build us up in this. And God, help us to rest in you. Help us, Father, to be serious about fighting sin, knowing that Jesus Christ could come at any moment, we could die at any moment, that these events of judgment are real, and that you do have a plan for us. Father, help us to love you more than our sin. 
Help us to submit to your spirit and let him do the work of turning our heads away from our sin and turning our bodies away from our sin and pursuing the things of Jesus Christ and the things of your word instead. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.